Chapter 1 of The Life of St. Gertrude I dedicate this to someone in my life right now that I would like to pray for. She is a widow, and for some reason when she told me her name, at first I thought of the old musical I, I saw, but now I realize that her name is short for Gertrude, so I'm praying for her by reading the life of St. Gertrude. Chapter 1 The Saint's Birth and Parentage Her Early Dedication to God's Intellectual Gifts Divine Communications Concerning Her Sanctity Our Lord Declares that he finds rest and repose in her heart. Desires a holy person to seek him there. The 13th century was an eventful year for the world and the church. 13th century, that's 1200, okay. Its commencement found the great orders of St. Dominic and St. Francis, oh, 1200, our favorite number, 12, established in almost every city of Europe. Already winning martyrs' crowns and counting their trophies won for the Lamb by the hundreds and thousands. St. Elizabeth of Hungary had sanctified a palace and edified a nation by her heroic virtue and her meek resignation to adversity. St. Thomas of Aquinas and the seraphic St. Bonaventura had bequeathed such treasures to the church as had never before been confided to her keeping. St. Louis had died a victim to his love of Jesus crucified and his grief that the land where his Lord had died should be despoiled by the heathen and defiled by the infidel. It was, in truth, a century of saints and of saints of more than ordinary note. At the close of this century was a crowning gift, came the great and beautiful Saint Gertrude, whose history has been too little known to uh, among us, has been too little known amongst us, while their very name, while her very name receives a continual homage of reverent love. The illustrious Benedictine abbess was born at Eiselben, a small town in the county of Mansfield, on the 6th of January, 1263. And thus, as it has been happily remarked, a star of no ordinary brilliancy was given to the church 
on the day on which that church was mystically led by a star to her incarnate God. It is said that the family of the Counts of Lechenburn were nearly related to the imperial family of Germany, but whatever their rank or dignity may have been, all distinct remembrance of it has long since passed away, and they are only now remembered as illustrious because of the surpassing sanctity of their illustrious child. Buccellinus, in his entitled Aquila Imperii Benedictini, gives a genealogical tree of the family of the Counts of Heckelborn, commencing with the father of the saint. and concluding with Federicus Dominus et Gomes in Heckelburn Familiae Sue Ultimus. But there is no date by which to determine when this count, the last of his family, passed away from the earth. When the saint had attained her 50th year, she was placed in the famous Benedictine Abbey of Rodersdorf in the Diocese of Halberstadt, where she was soon joined by her younger sister, Mechtilde. Here, under the careful training of the Benedictine Dames, who then, as now, devoted themselves with unwary solicitude and more than ordinary intellectual abilities to the education of those confided to their charge. The young Countess of Lechenborn advanced in wisdom and learning, both human and divine. The high intellectual gifts with which St. Gertrude was endowed had the most ample advantages for their development. At an early age, she was sufficiently conversant with the Latin tongue to read and converse in that language. Her reading was extensive for an age in which literature was confided to parchment manuscripts and oral instructions. Indeed, her devotion to literary pursuits though these were the best and purest kind since the scriptures of fathers and other theological works were her chief study. Indeed, her devotion to literary pursuits seemed at first likely to prove a hindrance to her spiritual advancement. Yet, all was overruled by infinite love and infinite wisdom. Her writings were to be the church's treasure in all ages, though, like stars in a stormy sky, their light may be for a time concealed from men, only perchance to shine more gloriously when they shall have emerged from this passing 
obscurity. Secular learning might encase the jewel, but it could not produce it. It might enhance the beauty of the pure and sparkling stream by diverting its course through a more cultivated channel, but it could not produce the stream itself. And now the spouse of virgins began to speak to the heart of his chosen one and to withdraw her from these exterior occupations no longer necessary for mental cultivation that she might listen without distraction or hindrance to those whispers of his love which we also despite our unworthiness are permitted to hear and to enjoy the saint has informed us herself when and how the first of these heavenly communications was vouchsafed to her. It was on a Monday, a January 25th. At the close of the day, the lights, the light of lights, came to dissipate the obscurity of her darkness and to commence her conversion. End quote. And Jesus came, as he mostly comes to his beloved ones, as she performed an act of humility and obedience, declining to an ancient religious to fulfill a conventual observance and doubtless from no mere habitual custom but with deep and lowly reverence for a spouse of Christ whom she considered incomparably her superior in virtue and sanctity. Her sisters were not slow to perceive that their companion was specially favored by heaven. One religious who had long suffered from most painful temptations was warned in a dream to apply to Gertrude for relief and recommend herself to her prayers. The moment she complied with this injunction, the temptation ceased. Another, who feared to communicate under a similar and even more urgent trial, obtained a morsel of cloth which had been used by the saint and placing it near her heart, implored our Lord to deliver her by the merits of Gertrude. The favor was granted, and from that moment she never suffered from the same temptation. It would indeed appear 
that Gertrude was especially designed by Providence to assist others, even during her lifetime, by her merits and intercession, as well as by the gift of counsel with which she was singularly favored. Gift of counsel. Please, yeah, gift of counsel. A person whose sanctity had been long manifest and who was specially favored by divine communications came to the monastery from a distant country to obtain an interview with the saint. As she knew none of the religious personally, she prayed that whoever would benefit her soul most by their conversion might be sent to her. It was then made known to her that whoever should come and take their place beside her would be indeed the one most beloved by God and the most holy amongst the religious. On her arrival, St. Gertrude came to her, but so well did she conceal any appearance of sanctity and hide the supernatural light which she was favored that the stranger imagined she had been deceived and again prayed as she had done before. The same reply was once more vouchsafed to her, and she was assured that this was indeed the religious who was so dear to God. Shortly after, the visitor had a long interview with St. Mechtilde, whose conversation she greatly preferred and whose sanctity was more apparent. Again, she, quote, inquired of God, unquote, and asked why St. Gertrude was preferred to her sister. Our Lord replied that he had indeed operated great graces in Mechtilde, but in Gertrude he had operated, and yet, and he would yet operate far greater. Another person of great sanctity who was praying for the saint felt a singular impulse of affection for her, which she believed to be supernatural. Oh, divine love, she exclaimed. What is it you behold in this virgin which obliges you to esteem her so highly and to love her so much? Our Lord replied, It is my goodness alone which obliges me, since she contains and perfects in her soul those five virtues 
which please me above all others, and which I have placed therein by a singular liberality. She possesses purity by a continual influence of my grace. She possesses humility amidst the great diversity of gifts which I have bestowed on her. For the more I affect in her, the more she abases herself. She possesses a true benignity which makes her desire the salvation of the whole world for my greater glory. She possesses a true fidelity spreading abroad without reserve all her treasures for the same end. Finally, she possesses a consummate charity, for she loves me with her whole heart, with her whole soul, and with her whole strength. And for love of me, she loves her neighbor as herself. Period. Unquote. After our Lord had spoken thus to the soul, he showed her a precious stone in his heart in the form of a triangle made of trefoils, T-R-E-F-O-I-L-S, trefoils, the beauty and brilliancy of which cannot be described. He said to her, I always wear this jewel as a pledge of the affection which I have for my spouse. I have made it in this form that all the celestial court may know by the brightness of the first leaf that there is no creature on earth so dear to me as Gertrude, because there is no one at this present time amongst mankind who is united to me so closely as she is, either by purity of intention or by uprightness of will. They will see by the second leaf that there is no soul still bound by the chains of the flesh and blood whom I am so disposed to enrich by my graces and favors. And they will observe in the splendor of the third leaf that there is no one who refers to my glory alone the gifts received from me with sincerity and fidelity as Gertrude, who, 
far from wishing to claim the least thing for herself, desires most ardently that nothing shall be ever attributed to her. Period. Unquote. Our Lord concluded this revelation by saying to the holy person to whom he had thus condescended, condescended to speak of the perfections of our saint. You cannot find me in any place in which I delight more or which is more suitable for me than in the sacrament of the altar, and after that, in the heart and soul of Gertrude, my beloved. For towards her, all my affections and the place and the and the complacness and the complacencies. You cannot find me in any place in which I delight more or which is more suitable for me than in the sacrament of the altar. And after that, in the heart and soul of Gertrude, my beloved. For towards her all my affections and the complacencies of my divine love turn in a singular manner. On another occasion, a devout person who was praying for the saint heard these words. She for whom thou prayest is my dove who has no guile in her, for, re for she rejects from her heart as ga gall all the guile and bitterness of sin. She is my chosen lily, which I love to bear in my hands. For it is my delight and my pleasure to repose in the purity and innocence of this chaste soul. She is my rose, my rose, whose odor is full of sweetness because of her patience in every adversity and the thanksgivings which she continually offer, offers me, which ascend before me as the sweetest perfume. She is that spring flower which never fades and which I take pleasure in contemplating because she keeps and maintains continually in her breast an ardent desire not only for all virtues but for the utmost perfection of every virtue. She is as a sweet melody which ravishes the ears of the blessed. 
and this melody is composed of all the sufferings she endures with so much consistency. Period, unquote. A little before Lent, as Gertrude was reading a lecture for the community, according to the custom of the order, she repeated these words twice. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart and with thy whole soul and with thy whole strength. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart and with thy whole soul and with thy whole strength. Thou shalt. Deuteronomy V1. The saint lived in a community of saints where more than one favored soul was vouchsafed intimate and frequent communion with her spouse. A sister who was touched by the devotion with which these words were uttered prayed that he who so loved Gertrude and had taught her to love him so much, would vouchsafe to impart to her the same blessed lesson. Our Lord replied, I have borne her in my arms before her infancy. I have preserved her in her baptismal purity and innocence until she by her own free choice and will, has given herself to me entirely and forever, and as a recompense for the perfection of her desires, I, in return, have given myself entirely to her. So pleasing is this soul to me, that when I am offended by men, I oft often enter therein to repose. and I make her endure some pain of body or of mind, which I inflict on her for the sins of others. And as she accepts the suffering which the same, with the same thanksgiving, humility, and patience as she receives all that comes from me and offers it to me in union with my sufferings, she appeases my anger and obliges my mercy to pardon for her sake an immense number of sinners. On another occasion, Gertrude, having humbly asked the prayers of a sister, the religious complied with her request, and while praying for the saint, heard these words. 
the faults which appear in Gertrude may rather be called steps in perfection. Steps in perfection. For it would be almost impossible for human weakness impossible that human weakness could be preserved from the blasts of vain glory. Amidst the abundance of graces which I continually operate in her, if her virtues were not hidden from her eyes under the veils and shadows of apparent defects, Thus, even as the earth produces a richer and more abundant harvest in proportion as the laborer has been careful in manuring it, so the gratitude of Gertrude bears me richer fruit the more I make her see her own weakness. It is for this reason that I permit different imperfections in her, for which she is in a state of continual humiliation, sending her a particular grace for each, with which she blots them all out from my sight. And the time will come when I will change these defects into so many virtues so that her soul will shine before me as a most glorious sun, S-U-N. What these defects are, we are not told. The saint's patience in sickness and in trial was unalterable. Her charity to her sisters abounded with each necessity for its exercise, and her sanctity was apparent in every action of her holy life. A special gift of prophecy or foreknowing for knowledge enabled her to give advice with promptness and the greatest wisdom on the most important occasions. When these gifts became known, the monastery was frequently visited by all classes of people who came to converse with her on spiritual subjects or to obtain counsel in difficulties. Her deep study of Holy Scripture and of the Fathers now bore abundant fruit, and it was observed that she had a singular and no doubt a heaven-sent felicity in applying what she had read and treasured in her memory to the spiritual necessities of those with whom she conversed. God and the salvation of souls, this was the one object of her life the one end of every action. From her humility, she had fully persuaded herself that the marvelous graces bestowed on her were given her merely for others. This 
holy delusion served two important ends. It saved her from every temptation to spiritual complacence, and it induced her to impart freely to others a knowledge of the revelations and other favors bestowed on her. She was simply, according to her own idea, a channel of divine grace to others. And believing this to be her end, she neither spared time nor labor for its accomplishment. Often her rest was short-ended and her food forgotten when souls demanded time or anxious thought. Quote, Not satisfied, even with this, she often depraved herself, deprived herself of the sweetness of contemplation when it was necessary to secure, succor the tempted, to console the afflicted, or what she desired above all else, to enkindle and increase the fire of divine love in any soul. For as iron, when she placed, when placed in the fire, for as iron, when placed in the fire, becomes itself like fire, thus this virgin, burning with love, seemed to be all love. Such zeal had she for the salvation of all. Period. Unquote. She believed that God would indeed be glorified thereby, and that his gifts would thus be multiplied a hundredfold. Quote, she was absolutely persuaded that she received nothing for herself, but that all was for the salvation of others. She never beheld anyone whom she did not consider better than herself, and it was on this account that she was so convinced that God would receive more glory by the communication of his graces to them. She believed that they merited more than a single thought by their mere innocence, even by their purity of heart, than she could do by all her mental powers or spiritual gifts. Period. Unquote. Can we wonder then can we wonder that a vessel so empty of self should have been filled to overflowing with God? That the quote perfume of the ointment unquote should have lingered for so many hundreds of years in the house of God? And that it still affords refreshment and consolation to his chosen spouses and to the most saintly souls? May this poor effort to extend the sweetness of that perfume be for his honor and glory, for the honor of this beloved, blessed saint, and for the refreshment of the little ones of Jesus. End of chapter 
1. We are on page 11. We will come back with chapter 2. On the life and revelations of Saint Gertrude. Chapter 1 was entitled The Life of Saint Gertrude. Early Consecration to God. Her Power with God. The Mystic Trefoil. Her Defects Virtues. And lastly, predicts the election of an emperor. Oh, that's coming up in Chapter 2. Thanks for listening. Chapter 2 St. Gertrude predicts the election of Adolphus of Nassau. Oh, I've been there quiets the fears of the sisters who expect to offer a temporal loss. Yeah, that's, I need this right now. Her election as abbess. Removal to hell deaths. Revelations of her sanctity. And our Lord appears to her, bearing the house of religion. Her generosity of spirit. That was a short table of contents for chapter 2. Let's begin. In the year 1273, Rudolf, Ru, Ru, Rudolf, is it Rudolf? No, it's Rudolf. Rudolf. Of Habsburg. Rodolf of Habsburg ascended the imperial throne as Emperor of Germany, though as he was not crowned by the Holy See, he only bore the humbler title of King of the Romans. It is said that his election was predicted by a priest to whom he showed singular marks of reverence and respect while bearing the holy viaticum to a dying man. Coxe, in his House of Austria, highly extols the character of this prince, but observes that he was raised to the imperial throne chiefly through the influence of the Archbishop of Mentz. Chrissy! Albert, the emperor's sole surviving son, succeeded to the hereditary dominions of his father, 
the electors would probably have accepted him as their chief had not his stern and unconciliating manners offended his best friends. And contrary to all expectation, Adolphus, Count of Nassau, was raised to the vacant throne. The nomination of Adolphus took place on the 10th of May, 12th, 92. How little he imagined that his new dignity and tragic end were at that very moment revealed to a nun in a distant and lonely cloister. The sisters were earnest in their prayers for a worthy successor to their most Christian king and intercede as true religious ever will with fervent supplications for the welfare of their country. On the very day, and almost at the same moment, when the important affair was decided, Gertrude told the abbess of her monastery what had occurred and predicted the terrible fate of the new monarch. Footnote, Adolphus, soon after his election, offended the Archbishop of Mentz, to whom he owed his elevation, and alienated the electors by arbitrary efforts to aggrandize his family. Albert, meanwhile, stood still hoped by some happy chance to obtain his father's crown. In 1298, a diet was assembled at Mentz. A long list of grievances was drawn up. Adolphus was cited to appear and on his refusal deposed. Albert was then raised to the imperial dignity. A civil war ensued. The two armies met at Gelhim between spires and worms. On the 2nd of July, and being led by the rival sovereigns, fought with unusual intrepidity. Intrepidity. Here, by a clever stratagem, the soldiers of Albert pierced through the guards who surrounded Adolphus and dismounted him. After a long defense, he attacked his rival once more, but was slain by him with a lance. Back to the story. The troubles of the times were not without their effect upon the monastery of Rodorfsdorf. Rodorfsdorf? Once, when it was threatened with a terrible calamity, which was considered inevitable because of the menaces of those who had both power and force on their side, the saint went to her superior and assured her that there was no longer any cause for fear. Almost at the same moment, 
the person whose anger had been so much dreaded came to the convent, and the religious found to their joy and amazement that the local judges had appeased all differences and established peace, even as Gertrude had predicted to the abbess. St. Gertrude was chosen abbess of her monastery in 1294. The year following, the religious moved to Hell's Deaths. The saint was elected to this important charge at the early age of 30. No slight testimony to her singular prudence and extraordinary virtue. For 40 years, she continued to edify and guide her spiritual children, many of whom had attained a high degree of sanctity. As superior, she was distinguished for charity and zeal. While others suffered, whether in body or in mind, she could not rest, and where there was need of amendment, her tears and prayers brought repentance and renewed fervor. Rather than any severity of reproof, which her very office might have more than sanctioned. The importance of her work and its immense value in the eyes of her divine spouse was manifested to her by a remarkable vision, which must ever be a special subject of instruction and consolation for those similarly circumstanced. <clears throat> and indeed for all religious. Our Lord appeared to her, bearing on his sacred shoulders a vast and magnificent building, he said. Behold, with what labor care in vigilance, I carry this beloved house. Labor, care, and vigilance, which is none other than that of religion. Religion, religion, it is everywhere threatened with ruin because there are so few persons who are willing to do or to suffer anything for its support and increase. You, therefore, should suffer with me in bearing it. For all those who endeavor by their words or actions to extend religion and who try to re-establish it in its first fervor and purity are so many strong pillars which sustain this holy house 
and comfort me by sharing with me the weight of its burden. Period, unquote. From this moment, the saint devoted herself with all the sanctified energy of a naturally ardent temperament to the work so dear to her spouse. Her, mo her monastery became indeed a, quote, pleasure house, unquote, of delight to the spouse of virgins. Under her guidance, the fervent increased in fervor and the saintly advanced rapidly in perfection. Many were favored with intimate and most blessed communications from heaven. One, at least, her sister in the flesh as well as in the spirit, obtained even on earth a recognition of her sanctity. The ranks amongst those who were invoked upon the church's altars. But the life of the young abbess was not to be devoted exclusively to active service, and our Lord began now to teach her that exterior zeal should have its limits, however holy, the end for which it labored. That contemplation was not only necessary for the individual soul, but also to promote the glory of God in others. Since prayer alone may affect conversions and sanctifications while active exertion without its vivifying influence is of little avail. A person to whom our Divine Lord had revealed his designs in regard to the saint wrote thus to her. Bottom of page 62. 